Father, I was reminded today of that verse uh, in Psalm 55 that says, Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. And then I looked in that marginal note in the New American Standard and uh, I was reminded again of... Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the, the sheer, rough-cut, literal translation of that, which was in the margin, is cast what he has given you upon him, and he will sustain you. We've all got burdens. We're all carrying stuff we wish we weren't carrying. Um, we're dealing with different things. We're dealing with different pressures and with different stresses. For some guys... They're dealing with health issues, and they've never had to deal with health issues before. They've always enjoyed health and been able to do whatever they want to do, and now suddenly, well, it's a new season. Uh, other guys uh, financially are really under the gun, and they've been there for a while, and they're hanging on by their fingernails, and it's not any fun. It's hard to sleep when there's that constant financial stress and pressure. For other guys, it's, uh, it's a marital situation. It's, once again, hanging by a thread. Or a wayward child. Uh, uh, sometimes these kids, Lord, we love them to death. We raise them to know you. There's a point where... They've got to figure it out for themselves, and they're becoming adults. They are adults, and they make wrong choices, and it kills us. It tears our guts out to watch them go the wrong path. It, it could be a hundred other things. Some guys in here are lonely because they've lost their wives, um, married for years upon years, or they're divorced. They never planned on this happening. We, we all have different burdens. You oversee our lives. And um, we believe that you're sovereign over everything. Everything. The good and the bad. Nothing is out of your control. If anything is out of your control, we're, we are in major trouble. And we don't always understand why things come into our lives. All we know is that we're burdened. All we know is that we suffer. But you are our Heavenly Father. You are the best Father there has ever been. You've never made a mistake with us. You understand our thought from afar. You know the pressures. You also know our hearts, and you know that we're prone to wander. If we had unbridled, unchecked prosperity, it would probably turn our hearts away from you. We couldn't handle it. Like these young athletes come out of college, sign these big deals. They can't handle the bucks. They just can't handle it. They're too young. They're too immature. There are too many people trying to get at them. And it's the rare young man that can handle that. And if he handles it, he's got wise older men around him, advising him. But we're the same way. We cannot handle unchecked prosperity. When they were going into the land... You told them you were going to give them houses they didn't build, cities they didn't uh, construct, orchards they didn't plant. You were going to dump a 
dump truck of blessings upon them. And you said, but be careful in Deuteronomy 6 that this not turn your heart away from me. Uh, David said, it was good for me that I was afflicted. Quite frankly, we don't like affliction. But you deem it to be good for us because no good thing do you withhold from those who walk uprightly. There are good things that others have that we don't have. That's because you know best, and that good thing is not a good thing for us right now for reasons we can't fathom, but you do. So we trust you with our lives, and we cast what you have given us on you. We can't carry it. We can't handle it. We don't understand it, but we cast it on you and your goodness and your character. And we are reminded that Peter said, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Now help us tonight. Put courage in our hearts. Give us new hope. We're not in this by ourselves. Your mercies are new every morning. Give each guy what he needs tonight from your word. You know exactly what we're thinking. You know exactly what we're pondering. If we ask you for a loaf of bread, you will not give us a stone. So feed us tonight from your word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, who is the bread of life. Amen. All right. Well, we've been in Hebrews 11 for a while now, and we've got uh, you guys that are coming in, just come on in. We're, uh, I'm sorry to repeat myself three times here, but we're, we're getting some pictures done tonight, so just come on in. And uh, you might want to spray that bald spot <laughs> just as you're sitting down, because you know it's going to reflect and you're, you're going to be found out. Yeah. You're bald all over there, Ron. You're looking good. Yeah, you look like an eight ball is what you look like there. Um, hey, we're in Hebrews 11. We've been in Hebrews 11 for a long time. We've been in Hebrews 11 since uh, the fall. And we're in Hebrews 11 because Hebrews 11 is God's Hall of Fame. Now, if you enjoy sports, you know uh, that every sport has its Hall of Fame. Basketball Hall of Fame is Springfield, Mass. Baseball Hall of Fame is Cooperstown. Pro Football Hall of Fame is uh, Canton. God's Hall of Fame is Hebrews 11. God has a little bit di different criteria because the whole issue with the Lord, the whole issue of the Christian life is walking by faith. And there's a lot of confusion. I think uh, some of us have been in church all of our lives, been in different denominations. Different denominations sometimes have a little bit different take on faith, in a sense. Um, uh, if, if you're new to the Lord and to the scriptures, uh, you're still kind of figuring all this stuff out, which makes sense. There's a lot kind of to figure out. Um, but in Hebrews 11, uh, chapter 6, you see in the midst of all these different men that are mentioned in Hebrews 11, in Hebrews 11:6, it kind of gives us the reason that they're in the hall of faith in the first place. They had different experiences. They had different uh, factors, they had different gifts, they had different strengths, different aptitudes. 
But here's what they had in common, 11.6 of Hebrews, without faith it is impossible to please him. For those who come to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Uh, it, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, and without perfection, it's impossible to please him. We think that God is pleased with us if we are close to perfection and rarely sin. The problem with that is we sin all the time. All the time. We don't even have to say, there are sins that we commit those are sins of commission, the theologians will tell you. But then you also have sins of omission, things that you should do that you don't do. Uh, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And a lot of times, as men uh, who know the Lord, we, a lot of guys walk around thinking that uh, they know the Lord loves them, but quite frankly, they're not sure that the Lord likes them. Does the Lord love you? Oh, I know he loves me. Oh, yeah, love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. Does God love you? Oh, he loves me. Does God like you? Well, I don't know if he likes me. You know, I mean, gosh, you know, I, you know. Why, why don't you think he likes you? I told this story before. I remember when my boys were little guys, and Mary and Rachel were off somewhere for a weekend, and John was probably five, and Josh two and a half, maybe just hit three. And I, you know, we'd been horsing around all day and playing in the backyard, throwing footballs and all this stuff and so I got him in the bathtub and we're we're having fun because mom wasn't there we're just you know I got a fire hose in there we're, we're just <laughs> doing stuff we normally wouldn't do and I thought well I better get some towels and so I went to get some towels and I wasn't gone two minutes and I come back and I walk in and they're standing up in the tub buck naked and they'd both pooped in the tub They were having a poop off. You know, when you're five and three, that's exciting. And they're just trying to out-poop each other. And they'd done a pretty dang good job, I'll tell you that. And uh, I got to tell you, I was a little irritated when I first saw it. And, and then I started laughing. Because it was funny. And I wasn't cleaning it up, so I wasn't too worried about it. No, I had to clean it up. You have to do that when you're a dad. But um, You know, a lot of times we think, we, we know the Lord loves us, but we're not sure he likes us. And you know why? Because we're always pooping in the tub. Or we're pooping somewhere. And we think that, oh man, you know, I messed up again, I screwed up again. This, this Hebrews 11.6 doesn't say without perfection it's impossible to please him. See, this is the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God doesn't ask us to be perfect because Jesus was perfect. And Jesus came and died in our place. Here's the heart of the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15. I mean, I think I quote this nearly every week. I think I quote it nearly every time I speak because there are guys sitting out there who need to hear the good news. And the good news, Paul says, and I say to you as of first importance that Christ died for our 
sins. Christ was perfect. He was the Lamb of God. He was spotless. He fulfilled the law in every point. He was born of a virgin. He did not have a sin nature passed on from his father because he didn't have a human father. You see? And he never sinned. Never. He was the perfect Lamb of God. I deliver to you as a first importance that Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose on the third day. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the apostles. Uh, he appeared to over 500 at one time. You see, Christ died for us. And the wrath of God, the judgment of God, sin requires judgment. Somebody does something wrong to you, to your family. We have courts and we want justice. There should be justice. But it doesn't always happen. But God is a just God. He is a holy God. So what did he do? He sent his own son. And the retribution, the wrath that should have been paid by us was Jesus took on him and he paid it for us. It's an amazing thing. So you see, those who come to God don't need to be perfect. You just simply trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for you. Uh, there's an old hymn. When Jesus went to the cross, he paid for your sin, he paid for mine. There's an old hymn that says, Jesus paid it 90%. <laughs> Almost everything he paid. That's not what the hymn says. It says, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. So you see, because, and these guys in the Old Testament, who are the guys mentioned in Hebrews 11, you see, Jesus hadn't come yet. He was in the future. So by faith, they're looking ahead to the Messiah who was going to come and die for their sins. They had a shadow of him. They, they had a, little nuggets that he was coming. They didn't have a whole lot of information, but they had enough that they could believe in him. So they looked ahead to the cross now, we look back 2,000 years to the cross, but it's always the cross. It's, it's always that cross up there. You see? And there's no one on that cross. Because he was buried, and he rose from the dead, and he appeared to over 500 and all the brethren, and then he ascended to the Father, and then the angel said, this Jesus who you just saw go up, he will return in the same way. And one day he's coming back. And he's going to make everything right. And in the interim... We're living our lives in a sinful world, and we're sinners. Uh, sin has not been um, demolished in our lives. Uh, it's still there. But this doesn't say without perfection it's impossible to please Him. It says without faith it's impossible to please Him. Now, when it says without faith it's impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We live in a culture, and, and pretty much the culture as a whole, the media, educational system, however you want to break it down, the whole message that they have for us and for our children is that God isn't. But he is. Those who come to him must believe that he is, and his fingerprints are everywhere. Those who come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. We are not perfect. The men in Hebrews 11 that are mentioned were not perfect. They were flawed men. They were men who were sinners. 
they were men who had great shame in their past, just like you do and just like I do. They would have given anything if they could go back and undo what they had done, but they couldn't undo it. I can't undo my shame, you can't undo yours. But Jesus, when he went to the cross, he paid for my sin, he paid for my shame. It's amazing what he did. Uh, these were flawed men. So we titled this series, From Shame to Fame. That's what he does with us. He takes beat up, broken sinners, uh, we're a bunch of narcissists, we're a bunch of self-lovers. We talked about the fact last week that, that the, the problem, generally speaking with men, is that we're all narcissists. We're all self-lovers and we're self-worshippers. We're into self-realization and self-understanding. We're into self-fulfillment. And it doesn't matter who we hurt to get what we want for ourselves. But what the Lord does is that when He comes into our lives and breaks into our lives and brings us to Him by the power of the Holy Spirit, no man can come unless the Father draws it. All that the Father has given me, Jesus said, will come. When He pulls you to, Christ, to Himself and He puts a new heart and you're regenerated by the Holy Spirit, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, all things have passed away, all things have passed away, all things have become new. So now you're born, and now once you're born, the name of the game is to grow. And what he wants to do is that he wants to grow us, and I'm summarizing last week, he wants to grow us into mature men. Uh, a, mature, uh, a mature man is a selfless man. An immature man is a selfish man. Amen. And we're all selfish, and we're all narcissists, we're all self-lovers. But we're on this path, and we're learning, and we're growing, and we're developing. Now, all these guys in the Old Testament were just like us. The guy we're going to look at tonight is not well known. There's only one event that is covered in his entire life. And it is an um, event, quite frankly, that I think he was ashamed of later in his life. His name is Barak. If you look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32... He says, and what more can I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and prophets. Now, some of those guys, we know their stories, and some of them are more obscure to us. Barak is one of the obscure guys. Who is Barak? Uh, flip back in your Bible, if you would, to Judges chapter 4. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Uh, the book of Judges is a tragic book. Uh, it covers several hundred years of great tragedy in the nation of Israel. The book prior to Judges is Joshua. Joshua is a book of victory. Um, Judges is a book of great failure. Uh, in Joshua, if you remember... And if you back up before the book of Joshua, they had been slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. Uh, now, why did they get into Egypt in the first place? Well, when Joseph was sold by his brothers to the Midianite slave caravan, they took him into Egypt. You know the story. Uh, what is this? Genesis 39. He was purchased by Potiphar, who was a high-ranking official. Um, Joseph thought his life was over. And suddenly he's a slave. He'll be lucky to be alive at the age of 25. He was sold in slavery at 17 because the Egyptians weren't real big on workman's comp when they did those pyramid things. 
They just use you up and kill you. They didn't care. But God gave him favor, and he was bought by Potiphar, and God gave him favor, and he was promoted, and suddenly he's running this great estate. And then his character was tested, and this woman lied because she wanted to have sex with him, and he wouldn't have sex with her. And she said he raped me, and he didn't, and he was thrown in the jail. Um, and you know, the whole time all this was happening, the hand of God was all over him. He had done what was right. He wouldn't sleep with that chick. She wouldn't go away. She kept bugging him day after day. He wouldn't sleep with her. And one night, she, or afternoon, whatever it was, she called him in and basically ambushed him, and he basically ran out of there, leaving his coat, his toga, whatever he wore. And she must have cried rape. And she tells her husband, and he winds up in prison again. He was in prison not for doing what was wrong. He was in prison for doing what was right. And for all he knew, he'd never get out of prison. Some of you guys are in a spot right now where you've tried to follow the Lord, you tried to do the right thing, and things have absolutely fallen apart on you. Can I tell you something? You're in pretty good company. So, well, this can't be of God. Well, as I read my Bible, I think it is of God. Well, this doesn't make any sense. That's why it's of God. Because in Isaiah 55, 8, God says, My ways are not your ways. See, you're thinking, this isn't the way it should be. Exactly. But see, in our lives, God works strangely and God works slowly. He puts, he puts Joseph in jail. Joseph did what was right. And then you know the story of what's going to happen. And Joseph thought this guy, he interpreted his dream. Two guys, he interprets their dreams. He thought this one guy who was going to live and go back to work for Pharaoh would get him out. Joseph says, hey, don't forget me. And what happened? Well, the guy forgot him. No emails, no texts, nothing. And he, as far as he was concerned, he was forgotten by God. But he wasn't forgotten by God. God was just setting things up, as he is for you. God works strangely, and God works slowly, but God works. And at the right time, God promotes. Psalm 75, not from the east, not from the west, not from the desert, comes promotion, but promotion comes from God. And when God is ready to promote you, there is not a person, a political party, there's, there is nothing in the world that can thwart the promotion when God's ready to promote. I don't care how long you've been waiting. So he promotes Joseph. Pharaoh has a dream. The guy says, hey, there was a Hebrew in that prison down there. He interpreted my dream. Bring him up here. They bring him up. Joseph said, here's what's going to happen. Here's your dream, Pharaoh. Here's what you dreamt. There's going to be seven prosperous years, seven um, horrific years of famine. You better appoint somebody to take 20% of the crops in the good years to save it up to get through the famine. And he said, you're the man. And suddenly, in about 15 minutes, Joseph went from the lowest place to the highest place and is the second most powerful man on the face of the earth. And only God can do that. And the famine hits, and da-da-da-da-da, you know, and his brothers are back there, and they thought they were done with him, and they get hungry, and their dad says, hey, what do you do? Sitting around here? Go get some food. They go to Egypt. They don't recognize Joseph. Joseph recognizes them, and he tweaks them a little bit. It was good for them. They couldn't figure out what was going on. And then they're reunited. I'm Joseph. Brought his dad. He never thought he'd see his dad again. That's how they got into Egypt. Then they're in there 400 years because a pharaoh arose who didn't know Joseph. And there's so many of those Hebrews. 
and they're having kids left and right. And the Egyptians aren't into kids. They're into a lot of stuff and vacations in Maui, so they don't have kids or wherever they went. And they get outnumbered, like Europe is getting outnumbered by the Muslims, you see. History teaches us, Hegel said, that men never learn from history. So they enslave all the Hebrews. They're there 400 years, then God raises up Moses. He leads them out to the promised land. They should have gone right in, but he sent 12 spies in a reconnaissance mission. Ten of the spies came back. They all said they're giants in the land. Ten of the spies says, yeah, we can't take the giants. Although God had just taken them through the Red Sea by his power. Although he had just sent ten plagues on the nation of Egypt. Although God had demonstrated his power 11 times, they said, we can't take those guys. And Joshua and Caleb said, yes, we can. But the ten persuaded the whole congregation. And because of the unbelief, God killed the ten. And everyone under 20 died in the wilderness and they wandered for 40 years. And then Joshua takes it. They go into the land to take on all the ites with their um, uh, iron chariots. They were the most civilized, technologically advanced people on the face of the earth. All of the ites, Canaanites, Amorites, Perizzites, all of them. And uh, God said, I'll fight for you. And they had great victory, and they drove them out. Mostly they drove them out. At the end of his life, Joshua said twice, God fulfilled every promise, every promise God fulfilled. I'm going to die, and now every man in this nation is going to have to make a choice. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And you know what happened? He died, and they went after the idols. Then that takes us into the book of Judges, because they left the Lord. Then God would bring the surround. He started raising up the ites again. And the ites started coming in and terrorizing them, because they were into idolatry instead of the one true God. And this goes on for hundreds and hundreds of years in a downward pattern. About every 80 years, God raises up a judge, a deliverer, to deliver them because they get desperate and call out to God. You guys still with me? This is called history. History is his story. And it must have seemed during the time of the judges that things were out of control. Because the theme of the book of Judges is that every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's sort of the theme of our times. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. On a daily basis, we're watching the foundations of this nation. We're watching the foundations being destroyed. Psalm 11:9. So I got the first text at 2.45 this afternoon. Hey, Steve, this will raise your blood pressure. And it did. Oh, we're going to put women in combat, officially. Okay, good. Well, we ought to be very proud. Send the 19-year-old girls into combat to fight the Taliban. Or they can be gang raped. What a bunch of weenies made that decision. And see, once again, this is why I no longer pastor. <laughs> but that's what they are. They ought to be ashamed of themselves. You don't send little girls into combat. Let me tell you something, real men don't send women into combat. Real men fight for women and protect women. Well, that's an old-fashioned. Yeah, it is. Let me tell you, when Joshua, you read the book of Joshua, they went in to take the land, 
It was the men and the women and children stayed back. David went on a raid with his mighty men, and while he was gone, they came and kidnapped the wives and children because David wouldn't take his women into combat. And then he went and got them back. <laughs> We're in trouble. We're in trouble. Amazing how relevant the scriptures are because we're going to see a woman in this passage with Barak go into combat. I love how God works the scriptures. I just love it. Because God's overseeing the whole world. You know, it looks like the world's out of control. It's absolutely under control to the nanosecond. God's prophetic timetable for the ages is more exact than an atomic clock. So here we are today, and I'm studying Barack and Deborah, and you're going to see in a minute, and then I get these texts. Hey, Steve, look at this, look at this, look at this. Hmm. Well, we're in the book of Judges. Yeah. So in Judges 4. You guys still with me? Are you? Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Now, Ehud was the previous judge. They got in trouble. They call out Ehud. The Lord uses him to deliver them. But then they forgot the Lord, and they go downward spiral again. Okay. Then the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. The Canaans were wiped out, or close to it, 100 years before. But now, here they come again because you've left the Lord. All right, now you're going to have some judgment. And the commander of his army was Sisera. Uh, three, the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots. You know how many iron chariots Israel had? Zilch. None. Sisera had all, I mean, he had iron chariots, he had drones, you didn't even know they were there. I mean, he could listen in your cell phone, he could read your license plate. From, I mean, it, that was the kind of thing he had. He had all the technology. They didn't have anything. Four. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the son of Lapidoth, uh, the wife of Lapidoth, I'm sorry, was judging Israel at that time. This is interesting. Israel had gotten so bad, they had gotten so far away from the Lord. Um, God has called, and it's clearly in the book of Deuteronomy, God has called men, watch this, God has called men to lead their homes, to lead their families, God has called men to lead the church. In fact, in 1 Timothy 3, uh, a few weeks ago on a Sunday morning, Chuck introduced uh, new elders. And they were standing here with their wives, and he said, around here we don't appoint guys as elders based on their net worth or where they went to school or how good a ball player they were or any of that stuff. It's about character, the character qualifications that you'll find in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus. And... Uh, these guys aren't perfect, but there's a consistency. And one of the things it says is that before a man can lead the church of the living God, he must manage his own household well. Because leadership for a man starts in the home, in the family. You see, every family is a small civilization. Every family is a small country. It's a small nation. And God wants fathers to be loving leaders of their homes. Um... Things were so bad in Israel. The men were so far away from God. The men were so far away from the scriptures. The foundations had been so devastated in the nation of Israel 
that there was not a man who could be found to deliver the nation. But there's a woman named Deborah. We thank God for godly women. Godly women... Um, boy, I know some godly women. Love them to death, thank the Lord for them. They've influenced me. Godly women have a desire to see men in the positions of leadership. That's the mark of a godly woman. Because they know God wants them there. Not that women don't have leadership gifts, but they understand that God has, that the husband is the head of the wife. They understand these things. Here's this godly woman. Now, Deborah, prophetess, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now, here's where it gets interesting, and here's where we meet this guy, Barak. All right? Now, she sent and summoned Barak. Uh, she says, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, watch this. She has real, clear directions for Barak from the living God. And here's what she says. Barak, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded Go and march to Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor, you can visit it today. It's like a cone-shaped, the only really cone-shaped, volcano-like mountain in all of Israel. What is it, 1,500 feet high, something like that? A little higher. But you can see it from a distance. Uh, go and march to Mount Tabor. Take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun. Watch this. I will draw out to you, the Lord says, Sisera. Now, who's Sisera? He's the head of the other guy's army, 900 chariot thing. I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops. His, and literally, it's his multitude of troops. I'll draw them to the river Kishon, and I will give, watch this, I will give him into your hand. Can anything be more straightforward? So you get 10,000 guys. Now, I know he's got many, many thousands beyond that, plus the chariots. But you go to Mount Tabor, and I'm going to pull him out. I'm going to draw him out with his guys, and they're going to come, and I'm going to hand him and his guys to you, and you're going to beat them. It's pretty clear. Those are your orders. Now, watch this guy, Barak. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Isn't that something? And he is in God's Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11. Isn't it interesting? Maybe at first reading, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Let's break it down. Here's what he should have said. He should have said, I will go. That's it. Okay, I'm on my way. He didn't say that. Now, once again, who, who had given this command? The living God of Israel. So here's what this guy said. Now, and remember the times, remember the seasons, and remember the condition of the men, the spiritual condition of the men. <laughs> the men were into themselves. The men weren't into serving the living God. The men were selfish and not selfless. To his credit, 
he says that he will go, but he puts a condition on it. And what's the condition? If he will go with me. He would go, but he'd only go if his mommy went with him. That's pretty sad. Why would he say that? Well, um, <laughs> here's the deal, and I love this. He said, if you go with me, I will go. If you don't go with me, I won't go. She went with him, and then note what she says to him. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours in the journey that you are about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. You should get the credit for this. You're not going to get it. She hadn't gotten the memo from the Pentagon about women going into battle. You see? Um, let, let me cut to the chase. When he said, if you go with me, I will go. You know what that's called? That's called weak faith. It's weak faith. I want to tell you something about our God. Now, I can look at this guy, and I can cut this guy up 14 different ways for being a wuss and not being a brave man and not being a courageous man and all that kind of stuff. But then I started thinking, how many times have I had weak faith? You know? And you know, I was saying earlier, we think the Lord is always against us and on our case. He's not. Psalm 56, 9, this I know that God is for me. Psalm 103, let me show you something about our God, about our Father. He's not riding us. He doesn't expect perfection. Psalm 103, in my new Bible where I'm still finding the verses, Verse 10, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Hey, if it were you, if it were me, would I have put Barak in the hall of faith for that statement? No, I wouldn't have. But God did. Why? Because God saw his faith. It was weak faith, but it was faith. Because you see, our God does not deal with us according to our sins, and he doesn't reward us according to our iniquities. He is, uh, look at 13, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Don't you love it that he has compassion on you? He himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. He knows this Barak guy. Hey, he knew this guy inside out. And you know what? He loved him. He was compassionate. He was merciful. He was kind to him. Look at 17. For the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. 
God was gracious to this guy, and all this guy had was weak faith. And God is such a gracious, compassionate, kind God that God puts him in Hebrews 11 because at least, watch this, in his day and age, at least he had weak faith. The other guys didn't have any faith. So he stood out in his day. If um, you guys still there, you still with me? See, you don't have. Here's the thing: you don't have to have perfect faith to get in God's hall of fame. Those who come to Him must believe that He is. Do you have every point? You have every I dotted and every T crossed biblically and technically, and you got all the little things in a row, and you got everything perfectly, and you're doing everything just right? No, 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 no. We're still sinners. I always talk about John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. Because his story is so magnificent. He was an absolute reprobate. He was against God. He was a sailor, became a captain of a ship, ran slaves from West Africa to the West Indies, would rape women. He was such a blasphemer, other sailors did not want to be on the deck with him. Now you think about that. A sailor swears like a sailor. But they didn't want to be around him because he was a blasphemer and they were afraid God was going to strike him. He was such a reprobate. And he knew the gospel. His mom had told him the gospel, but he rejected it. He was hard, hard, hard. In fact, to break him down, God allowed him to become a slave to a black woman. That was unheard of in those days. Still didn't break him. Finally, God broke him. And through a very, very slow process, he became a pastor. Wrote hundreds of hymns, including Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a a Wretch. And when he said wretch, he meant it. When I look at the scriptures, I see three kinds of faith. Um, And John Newton looked back on his life, and he was amazed that God brought him to faith. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Well, John Newton, all of his life, two, two statements he was famous for. If you met him on the street, you'd say, Pastor Newton, how are you today? And he would say... I am just as God would have me. That's very good. Whatever was going on in his life, he knew it was under the control of the shepherd. How are you today, Pastor Newton? I'm just as God would have me. I'm right where God wants me to be. Safest place in the world to be. The other thing he said throughout his life, he would say this, I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a great Savior. Yeah. Uh, Barack had weak faith. Now, let me back up. You might have weak faith um, where you are right now. That's okay. It's faith. 
And I'll tell you what, it's better than where you used to be because where you used to be, you had dead faith. We all start out with dead faith. Ephesians 2.1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But because of what the Lord did, he broke into our lives. He made us alive. And then you get, that's, this is Ephesians 2, and then you get down to, what is it, 8? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Not even the faith that you exercise is of you. God gives you the faith so you can exercise the faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Not as a result of works that any man should boast for. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, not good works to be saved. You were saved in verse 8. These are good works that will touch the lives of other people as you walk through life. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand before you were ever born that you might walk in them. So you see, we start out with no faith, we're dead faith. And then at a certain point, Christ invades our lives, we're regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and we come to Christ. Okay. And now, and now, we're going to learn the walk of faith. And we learn to trust God. And we get into tough situations, and we try to scheme our way out and do the best we can, and when our plans fall, put us in the ditch. And then uh, out of desperation, we call the Lord, and He delivers us, and it builds our faith. You see? And every time God rescues us, you know what happens? It makes our faith stronger. I, I look at Barak. He had weak faith. Um, this is kind of wild. He wouldn't go unless Deborah went with him. And she went with him, and she said, by the way, you're not going to get the uh, honor. It's going to go to a woman. And the woman that was going to get the honor was not Deborah. If you go on and read the story, uh, they did. Ex he, he went with Deborah uh, in Judges 6. Uh, he went on to Mount Tabor, verse 12. Uh, then they told Sisera that Barak had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people were with him. Um, Deborah said to Barak, For this is the, Arise, this is the day in which the Lord has given you Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Now watch this. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. So what happened? How'd they beat these guys with 900 iron chariots? If you look over at chapter 5, verse 20, it says, The stars fought from heaven, and their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. What was Kishon? It was a river. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. Apparently, what God did in the atmosphere, he brought the rain clouds in to cover the stores. Most scholars believe a torrential rainfall came. What happened was it was, such, it was, a, it was a rain of such magnitude that the chariots became absolutely worthless and sunk in the mud up to their axles, and the guys were absolutely grounded, and here comes Barak with his guys, and they clean these suckers out, and so Sisera sees what's going on, and being the man of valor that he is, he cuts out and starts running. And he's running for his life, verse 17. Now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. The Kenites, uh, Moses, they're tied in with Moses, the, the father-in-law of Moses. You want to do a little study on that, okay? I'm not going to go into the details. Jael, this woman, went out to meet Sisera. 
And she said to him, turn aside, my master, turn aside to me. Now remember, this guy Sisera had been terrorizing these people for 20 years. He was the, um, he was the Osama bin Laden. He was the, who was the guy we caught hiding in that little ditch? Saddam Hussein. That's who this guy was. He is on the run. Terrorized these. The stuff he had done, the, the families that had been killed, murdered, fathers, the women raped. This guy was unbelievable. Jael went out to meet Sisera, and as he's on the run, she says, Turn aside, my master, turn aside, don't be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. So she's going to hide him out. He said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. This guy's exhausted. He's been running in the mud trying to save his life. She opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink, and then she covered him. He said to her, Stand in the doorway of the tent, for it shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, Is there anyone here, that you shall say no. He was trusting her to protect him. He falls asleep. He's exhausted. But J.L., Heber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand, went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple, and it went through into the ground, for he was sound asleep and exhausted, so he died. You know, guys, there are some women you just don't mess with. <laughs> this was one of them. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you this. She had her opportunity, and she took it. Watch the next line. Here comes Barak. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said, Come, and I will show you the man who you are seeking. And he entered with her. And behold, Sisera was lying dead with the tent peg in his temple. And who got the credit? That gal did. Now I want to say this to you. How would you like... I, 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 I'm surmising here. I can't prove this, but I'm surmising. I think uh, at that moment, Barack learned a great lesson. You know what? We just whipped those guys in battle. You know what? Why didn't I trust the living God? Why didn't I do that? I think he was ashamed. And I think he was doubly ashamed when he saw how Cicero went down. Have you ever done something and been ashamed? Sure you have. We all have. And that's the one snapshot out of this guy's life that's in the Bible. And I don't know this for a fact, but you know, the scripture talks about how we go from faith to faith. Here's what God does. He takes us in our infancy and in our immaturity and he teaches us lessons. And we fail and we fall short and then we'll have a small victory, then we'll fall back, you know. Did he have faith? Yeah, he had a weak faith. But I, here's my guess. I think the next time a situation came up, you know what I think this guy had? I think he had a strong faith. Because he learned from what happened. We go from faith to faith. 
Have you just had an issue of faith where you're trusting God and if God doesn't come through for you, you're in big trouble and all that? And, and you know, I, I know certain guys in here, guys have shared their stories. And, you know, it's always wild. Everybody has a story. Everybody has a story that's fascinating, that's remarkable. Everybody. And everybody looks normal and everybody looks together. But I'm going to tell you something. There's some stories in this room. Are there not? So I watched this video yesterday. And the reason I watched it, it was on, there's a blog, and you can watch it. It's, if you Google, the Gospel Coalition. It's a good website. I check it every day. They have some great stuff on there. And if you go to blogs, and then there's a guy named Justin Taylor. I check, he's a good writer, so I check his blog, usually every day. And I'm scrolling down, and he has uh, this video you can click on, and here's what it says. It says, let me get it right. Lesbian tenured professor becomes pastor's wife. I said, huh, I think I'll watch that. And I did. It was an hour long. I want to tell you something. It was better than Downton Abbey. <laughs> because it was true. And uh, there's Marvin Olasky. It's at Patrick Henry College, Christian College, somewhere in Virginia, and uh, Christian school. And there's Marvin Olasky uh, with World Magazine. And he's interviewing this lady, real uh, I'd say Galron, I'm, I'm guessing 40, early 40s maybe, 40-ish. Real attractive, uh, real feminine looking. Uh, I'm hitting it, and you know, she's real gracious, and she starts to talk, and um, she starts telling her story. And she's addressing all these college students at a Christian college, because there's a lot of debate going on at Christian colleges now, even about homosexuality at Christian colleges because the culture is so far gone. And a lot of Christian kids are confused. So this lady, Olasky's interviewing and all this, and it turns out that uh, she became a Christian in 1998. But prior to 1998, she's an English professor, PhD, tenured at a major university, research professor, and uh, she is a lesbian, and knows nothing of God, knows nothing of the gospel, has nothing of interest in Christianity, is, into, is a vegan, is into the environment, the, the whole nine yards. She, she uh, dresses as a man, I mean, is very masculine in her appearance and dress, and I'm listening to this, and I go, this, is a, this is unreal. And then she starts telling this story. And... Uh, a very attractive, very feminine, very, very, very intelligent, very articulate, um, great sense of humor. And I'm thinking, this is astonishing. And uh, she starts telling the story of how the Lord radically changed her life and brought her to faith. She had no faith. She was dead in her trespasses and sins. She didn't get the gospel. Satan has blinded the unbelieving that they may not see the truth of the gospel. She couldn't see it. And she'd written an article in a paper, and she was professor of English literature and queer studies. 
That's how deep she was into this. Was an apologist for it. And someone wrote her a letter, and she looked at it several times, she said. Actually, more than several times. Because usually people either really loved what she wrote or they really hated it. And she could tell who was for her. It was very clear. But this gentleman had written her a letter, and she, she started to throw away. In fact, she put it in the wastebasket, and she got it out again, and she kept reading it over and over because she could tell that he didn't agree, but he was simply asking her questions. And it was very thoughtful and very civil and very polite. She couldn't put it down, so she wrote a response to him. And then, you know, a few days later, she gets a response back that once again was very kind and very, you know, sincere. And that, that, well, they wind up. It turns out this guy and his wife basically live in the same neighborhood. And they actually invited her to dinner. And it turned out this guy was a pastor. But he didn't try to convert her, and he didn't try to share the gospel with her immediately. They just had her in, one by one. And then she's doing this research project on the religious right, and because she felt like whenever she did a project, she had to read the literature represented, she, she, she thought, well, instead of just reading it, well, they all believe the Bible, I'm just going to read the Bible, just from a literary perspective. So she starts reading through the Bible, reading chunks of the Bible, and then she reads it again, and then she reads it through again, because she's very thorough, she's very serious about her academics. And one night, she has a group of... Um, people in the homosexual community in, and they're, you know, having dinner and talking, and she goes into the kitchen, and a guy who has had surgery to become a woman, that's part of the group, walks in behind her, and he said, are you okay? And she said, yeah, I'm fine. He goes, well, you, I, I'm, you seem different to me, and you seem troubled. Can I help you? And she said, well, I'm doing this research project, and she said, you know, and he goes, yeah, yeah, he told me that. She, he, she said, I've been reading the Bible from cover to cover. She said, can I be honest with you? He goes, yeah. She said, I keep thinking to myself, what if it's true? And he says, it is true. He said, I was a Presbyterian pastor for 15 years. And if you're really interested, I can give you some books. The next day, he brings through a bunch of books, including Calvin's commentaries, and she's reading on Romans 1. And this guy, she's reading the notes that this guy wrote to himself before he walked away. Be careful here. Be careful here. It's in the margins. You can't make it up. You can't make this up. And Christ invaded her life and gave her a new heart and gave her a new life. And she said it's been extremely painful. And they ask her, they open up her questions, and they ask her a couple of questions, and she said, you know, that's too painful for me to even talk about. She said, I can't talk about that yet. And she's written a book, and, and very wise. And she's... She marries this. She's a pastor's wife with four kids. And she's helping these kids at this college that are trying to sort through these gender issues. And who else better to help them than her? Because you see, she is his workmanship. <laughs> 
created in Christ Jesus for good works. But he took her from dead faith, no faith. That's what he's done with every one of us. You say, well, my story's not that dramatic. Probably isn't. But we, we had, look at guys, we all had the same condition of sin that she had. Every single one of us. Right? Yeah. So, here's the deal. There's dead faith. Then he brings us to faith. And we're like Barack. We got weak faith. There's another word for weak faith. Can I tell you what it is? It's little faith. You ever heard of little faith? In Matthew 6, Jesus said, O you of what? Little faith. And in the context, and see, this really applies to us as guys. Because in Matthew 6, Jesus is talking about worry and anxiety and fear of the future. And really what he's talking about is your economic status in life. And I'm going to tell you something. Things have changed in this country. Because if you're a guy that has worked and you've worked hard for what you've gotten and you didn't steal it. And, see, we suddenly have this culture in this country that if you've accumulated anything, the only, way you couldn't have got, the only way you could have gotten that was by being crooked in some way, shape, or form. So you see, if you've got it, you're really bad. I don't know if you picked up on this. And so we got a whole portion of the country that's listening to leadership that is based on violation of the 10th commandment, which is thou shalt not covet. And so we got a major movement in this country and leadership that is pounding the drum and they covet. They covet your money. They covet your freedom of speech. They covet your freedom of religion. They covet your medical decisions. Unless, of course, if you want to abort a child, then you have a right to choose. But if it's anything else about health, you don't have a right to choose. They choose for you. Now you say, you're getting political. I'm just simply observing. And maybe you've picked up on this. I don't know. Maybe you haven't. Sure you have. And in the midst of this, so we get concerned. And in the midst of this, and you know what's going to take us, you know what our greatest threat in the midst of all this is? I'll tell you, the greatest threat is not the loss of this or the loss of this or the loss of this or 63% taxes if you're a golfer and you've got to move out of California. <laughs> but now you're not going to move. Because you got too many tweets coming at you. <laughs> you know what the greatest thing you got to watch out for? That your greatest enemy is a little faith. Because if in the in these days and these times in which we're living in, if you fall into little faith, if you fall into weak faith, you're not going to sleep at night. And I'll tell you what else. You're going to lose all your joy. And you're going to be just a walking piece of anxiety. That's all you're going to be. So in Matthew 6, see, this faith thing relates to us. Right here in our times as we're living, in Matthew chapter 6, 
Jesus says, verse 25, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. As to what you will eat, what you will drink, how you'll pay for college, or how you'll do retirement, he doesn't say that, but it's implied in the text he's talking about the essentials of life. We've been over this passage in here. Um, four key words in here. The first one is Father. All the way through Matthew 6, he's talking about the Father. See, we forget the Father. Our Father is sovereign. That means he's in absolute control. Our Father raises up rulers. He sets them down. I don't care who they are. County commissioners, he raises them up. He sets them down. Presidents of the United States, he raises them up. He sets them down. Speakers of the House, uh, backroom deals in the Senate, in, in the Congress, lobbyists paying off this, whatever it is, Chicago, Dallas, I don't care what it is, he runs them all like puppets. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. They're not running it, he runs them. That's how it works. That's how, but if you forget that, and all you do is watch Fox News. <laughs> and when you go to bed at night, if you get up every two hours and check CNN, you're going to be a nervous wreck, man. You can't take enough pills to fix you. <laughs> so what is the antidote? Jesus says, for this reason. What reason? you got a father who runs it all, and his eye is on you. So don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. Look at the birds of the air. Your father takes care of them. Are you not much more important than they? Well, I'm not sure because I read a Peter brochure. <laughs> no, you are more important than they because you're made in the image of God and they're not, the animals. You see, we've lost our minds. So you read the word of God. And what it does, it calms you down. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say, Every man needs a quiet heart, and I am convinced that only the gospel can give a man a quiet heart. Amen. If he's not God, if he's not in control, we're finished. But he is God, and he sent his son, and he watches over us daily, and he gives us daily bread. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That means your name be honored and hallowed. Thy kingdom come, and it's coming. And nobody can stop it. Nobody can stop it. It's coming. <laughs> it's coming. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So when you pray, that's how you pray. I'm in your hands, Father. And I want your kingdom to come in my life and my home, and I want your will to be done in my life. Not my will. I'd like this and this, but what do I know? I submit to your will. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Get me through this day financially. Man, I haven't worked in four months. I can't find a job. I've sent out nine Julian resumes. I can't get hired. Okay, he's your father. He knows that. He knows your heart. He'll give you what you need today. Yeah, but my gosh, what about tomorrow? Well, it's not tomorrow yet, is it? <laughs> So go to sleep. He gives his beloved even in their sleep. In some way, somehow, it's going to come in tomorrow. Yeah, but I wish I had this much. Yeah, but you don't. But seek ye first the kingdom of God.
Seek Jesus first. A lot of us have, uh, I don't know, sought accomplishment. We've sought, uh, I said, I think last week, we all want to be Johnny Manziel. He's had a pretty good run. We all want to be RG3 until he got hurt. All right? Two very gifted young men. Everything's going their way. Man, that's how we want life to go. But uh, uh, they're going to hit the wall, just like you hit it and I hit it. You see? It doesn't always go our way. We can't, hun- we can't hun- handle unbridled accomplishment. We can't handle it. Um, we want accomplishment. We, we want uh, fame. Uh, we want riches. We want all the money and the iris. And you know, it's all set up. We, all, we want it all set up so we wouldn't ever, ever again have to trust the living God. Now, we won't say that. But I mean, really? Isn't that what's at the heart of it? But you know what he wants for me and you? He keeps moving me to a place where I don't have any choice except to trust him. And isn't he doing that with you? And I don't like it. And you don't either. And you say, Lord, deliver me. And he doesn't deliver you. So you got to press in even more to him, which is the whole point. But see, what this does, when you're, when you're in tight spot after tight spot, follow me here, he keeps delivering. And you know what that does for a weak faith? When he keeps delivering you, that turns a weak faith into a what? Strong faith. Two verses, and we're done. Um, Isaiah 8, and then we're going to go to 2 Chronicles 20 in the two minutes that I have left, which, of course, I'll stretch to eight minutes. Isaiah 8. See, there's all this stuff around us to fear. What, 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 were, what were these guys fearing? Sisera and his 900 chariots and all the army that would come in and overrun them. All right, well, what are you fearing? What, do you, what, what, what keeps you up at night? What worries you? What is it that concerns you that threatens your well-being and the well-being of your family? Now, I want to show you something in Isaiah 8, verse 11. Uh, the people are going the wrong way, most of the people. So verse 11 of Isaiah, he said, For this the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, watch this, you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. Watch this. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. If you're going to fear something, fear Almighty God. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is clean. Fourteen times in Proverbs, it talks about the fear of the Lord. And I'm going to tell you something. If you've got the fear of the Lord, there's going to be a quiet in your heart. Because whatever it is you're afraid of, (laughs) he can take. 
Remember saying, my dad can beat up your dad? Well, my God can beat up your God. He has the power. So we go to 2 Chronicles 20 as we wrap this thing up. Because see, we look at old Barak and say, oh yeah, Barak, what a loser. He had weak faith. Wouldn't go to war without his mommy. Gosh, what a wuss. Well, aren't we wusses sometimes in our weak faith? Can I tell you something about Matthew 6? And I didn't read the passage as I went through Matthew 6, but at one point Jesus said, O ye of little faith. Little faith is the same as weak faith. Can I tell you what little faith is? And can I tell you what weak faith is? Little faith and weak faith, here it is. It's little thinking about the greatness of the Father. It's having small thoughts about the greatness of God. That's how you have little faith and that's how you have weak faith. But you got a guy in 2 Chronicles 20 by the name of Jehoshaphat. My dad, every once in a while, would say, Jumpin' Jehoshaphat. To this day, I don't know what that means. But it was a powerful statement. And whenever he said it, it got my attention. I, I, I never asked him what it meant. But Jehoshaphat was a godly king. And in 2 uh, uh, am I going to Chronicles or Kings? Chronicles. I'm in I all messed up. In 2 Chronicles 20, he's in a situation just like Barak and Deborah. They got, they got three nations, a multitudinous army, probably close to a million guys, camped down the hill from Jerusalem, uh, maybe 40 miles as the crow flies, and they're coming to take Jerusalem. And so what does this guy do? Now here's an example of strong faith. He's outnumbered. He can't take these guys. He didn't have enough resources he, I mean, he had no, the CIA failed him. He didn't know they were coming. He just got the word. I mean, this guy is in trouble. Uh, verse 2 of 20 of 2 Chronicles, then some came and reported Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea. Verse 4, uh, 3, Jehoshaphat was afraid, turned, to, turned his attention to seek the Lord, proclaimed to fast throughout all Je the, the, Judah. 5, Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. Watch this guy pray. Watch what he does. He said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? He starts declaring the greatness of God. He doesn't run to some woman or he doesn't run to some this. Or, we're always running to people. He goes right to the throne and we have access to the Holy of Holies through the blood of Jesus. He goes right there and he says, Oh Lord, are you not God in the heavens? Are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand so that no one can stand against you. Did you not, O oh our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? He reminds God of the promises of God. He goes right down the line. It should evil come upon us, any of this. Uh, you will hear and deliver us. Now behold, these guys are coming to us in verse 10. Look at verse 12. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? This is great. For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. <clears throat> That's strong faith. 
And you know what the Lord says? You read the rest of this? The Lord says, hey, don't sweat it. I got it. I got your back, and you're not even going to fight. I'm going to take these suckers. It doesn't say suckers. I'm going to take these guys for you. And then he goes on and says, for the battle is not yours, but the Lord's. That's strong faith. So what are you facing tonight? What are you scared of? We've got the same God he had. And I'm going to tell you something, guys. He honors his word. He is watching over his word. He's watching over his word to perform it. That's the promise. Say, Steve, I can't see any way out. My gosh, you're a candidate for something great. God loves those situations. And when he delivers you, you tell your kids so that they can tell their kids. So that they can tell their kids. Let's pray. Help us, Father, with our faith. Hey, Lord, we're just average guys in here. We have our ups and downs. We mess up. We, we've all done dumb things. Even after we've known you, we, we made some dumb moves. Some of us are in trouble because we did something really stupid and got ourselves in trouble. But you're still our God. And we can still come to you. Shoot, our kids have done dumb things, and we told them not to do it, and they did it anyway, and we helped them out. Why wouldn't you help us out? We're average dads. You're the great father. So we come to you right where we are, whatever we're facing, and we say, you are my God. Hmm. The eye of the Lord is upon those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness. The psalmist said, answer me quickly, for I am in distress. Answer us, Lord. Deliver us. Help us not to waver. Help us not to get our eyes off of Jesus. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus as we go to sleep tonight. In his great name we pray. Amen.